Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Bant, and along with me on this journey revisiting 80s movies is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. I remember my father telling me there are only two important things in life. He said, finding out what you do well and finding out what makes you happy. And if God is smiling on you, they're both the same thing. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1984 summer romantic comedy, The Flamingo Kid, from ABC Motion Pictures and Mercury Productions. Distributed by 20th Century Fox, it stars Matt Dillon, Richard Crenna, and Janet Jones. Directed by Gary Marshall, this movie is rated PG-13 with a running time of 1 hour and 40 minutes. This marks the second episode of our Summer at the Cinema series, where all the movies we talk about take place during this summer. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Teen superstar Matt Dillon comes of age as an actor of enormous scope and talent in this unanimously acclaimed charmer from director Gary Marshall, also starring Richard Crenna, Hector Elizondo, and Jessica Walter. The Flamingo Kid has been called Laugh Out Loud Funny, The Perfect Gift, and A Movie Worth Getting in Line For. It is one of those rare films in which gifted performances and a sharply etched script leave you with a story that rings true and characters who loom larger than life. Everything was settled for 18-year-old Jeffrey Willis, Dylan, the plumber's son from Brooklyn. One last summer of carefree fun before college. That was until his friends come speeding up in their 1960 convertible to invite Jeffrey for an innocent day at their parents' fancy beach club on Long Island. Suddenly, a summer of packing groceries and lusting after stock girls becomes a season of discovery. Jeffrey gets a job as a cabana boy at the El Flamingo Beach Club, a world of rich and shapely co-eds, gin-playing card sharks, and wealthy snobs. From his first cabana encounter with Carla, he is hooked and lured to a world distinctly different from his working-class roots. 1963. It was a summer of innocence and of change. A Summer of Awakening for The Flamingo Kid. The Flamingo Kid. So that was What's on the Box. Let's move on to our earliest memories of this film. Jason, why don't you start us off? Let's do it. Let's continue on with these summer flicks. And here it is, Bill Bant, short and sweet. I'm 11 years old when this film is released. I did not see it in a theater. I caught pieces of it on cable watch. I'm not sure if I've ever seen the entire film, to be completely honest. I do recall the general premise being about a young hot guy that takes a job at a summer resort. I vaguely recall being aware of Matt Dillon at this point, but that's most likely because I was aware of The Outsiders and possibly aware of his photo on magazine covers, but I had not seen my bodyguard at this point or Rumblefish, and that's all, folks. I got nothing else. Over to you, Bill Ben. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. So I did want to see this for the longest time when it came out, uh, maybe because it looked like a movie that took place on the beach, uh, maybe because it was directed by Gary Marshall. I mean, when it came to late 70s, early 80s television, Gary Marshall and Aaron Spelling were producing just about everything I was watching on television. Spelling did Starsky and Hutch, The Love Boat, Fantasy Island, while Marshall did Happy Days, Laverne Shirley, and Mork and Mindy. But even though I wanted to see this movie... 
I never got around to it. I did my 25 movies in five days in the spring of 91, which I tried to catch all the movies during the 80s that I missed. So that was the only time I have seen this movie. I don't remember that much about it, but but luckily because of this podcast, it gives me an excuse to see it again. It's probably one of our shortest earliest memory segments ever. Yeah, no question about it. I was looking forward to seeing it because I needed to be reminded of it. And I will share this with the listeners that we had difficulty finding this film. It is not available on streaming anywhere. And Bill Bant had to purchase two copies of the DVD to watch. So, yeah, unfortunately, you can't turn on Netflix and watch this one, which is unfortunate. I was sure it was on streaming earlier this year. I don't know what happened to it. I can't remember what streaming service it was. Please bring it back. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm sure you're right. So maybe it will pop up again soon. Hopefully it does. Yeah. All right. So let's move on to initial thoughts. What are our initial thoughts of the Flamingo Kid after watching it all these years later? Yeah, no kidding. Long time no see. And here we are starting off in Brooklyn, 1963. I believe, you know, there's always been some part of me that would love to go back to the 1960s, you know, do a little time travel, because there's just a general energy portrayed in these films that attracts me. It's the music, it's the clothing style of the cars, there's a sexiness to it, a romanticism to it, and I have a very romantic idea of what the 60s were, yeah, but just because of these movies. Meanwhile... This movie starts off, and I'm watching these poor kids in the sweltering heat during the summer in Brooklyn, and simultaneously, I'm watching this movie in 80-degree heat in my apartment in L.A., so I could relate to the heat. I do love the location of the El Flamingo Beach Resort. That's Spanish for the Flamingo Beach Resort. I'm not a beach guy, but still, it's the kind of place I might fantasize about a little just because of all the beautiful beach-going ladies, the nice amenities, the fancy drinks, it's really a scene. So I thought the uh, the just the location, the, the main setting for this film was very attractive. I mean, I, there's a, an element of escapism that I appreciate there. Hey, guess what? Besides Matt Dillon, you know who else is in this movie? Fisher Stevens. A little shout-out to Fisher Stevens as his buddy Hawk. I see Fisher Stevens in this movie. I, again, was just not aware of the entire supporting cast, star-studded supporting cast, until I went over the cast list before doing this. And here's Fisher Stevens. He shows up, and I see him, and I got to say, man, I mean, I still think short circuit. I still think about the fact that he dated Michelle Pfeiffer for a period of time, and I got to hand it to the guy. He's had a long-lasting career from the Flamingo Kid to now just having had a supporting role in the hit HBO show Succession. Not too shabby. He's fun in this. Young, tan, full head of hair. Looking good, man. Here's a shout out to Jessica Walter as Phyllis Brody. I absolutely adore this woman. She can do no wrong. I can't say, though, that I'm overly familiar with her work, but She can take a simple line and turn it into this humorous zinger that really stings but is hilarious. She just nails the role of a snobby, pretentious, elitist, entitled rich woman. And if you have any question that she can't nail that role, well then, in more recent times, I would say just watch her as Lucille Bluth in the show Arrested Development. And that's all you need to know. Uh, She's amazing. Deep breath. Janet Jones. 
Janet Jones, portraying Carla, the California girl, sun-kissed perfection. My goodness. That shot of her coming out of the pool now ranks only second to Phoebe Cates in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. I mean, uh, I think I mentioned Janet Jones. Did Did I mention her having like a very small, small bit part in 9 to 5? Did I call her out during that podcast? Maybe. I could be wrong. Maybe either way, Janet Jones, she's a beauty. She's been married to Wayne Gretzky since 1988. Uh, American Anthem. That's another movie. I'm just going to mention that as the beautiful Janet Jones. Anyway, she shines in this literally. And the game of gin is featured in this Bill Bant. I am not familiar with that game. I've never played gin. I've never played gin rummy if I'm not mistaken. I know many of my friends have, contemporaries, parents, family members, but I'm not familiar with it. And then the expression sweet ginger brown is mentioned more than once in this film. And I was like, oh, is that where where the name comes from? Ginger brown. I was like, what? That's not true. I started doing a little research on the history of gin and I got lost in it and I'm not going to go into it right here. So you can look it up, folks, if you want to know more about the game of gin or gin rummy. Freaking Bronson Pinchot is in this movie, and he's always a pleasure to uh, see. Just a welcome presence. Hilarious. It's not even as if he has a lot of lines or a lot of great lines in this, but he simply has a demeanor and a delivery that makes him unique. I love scenes that establish relationship connections quickly, and it's done rather well here with the relationship between Jeffrey Willis, that's our protagonist, played by Matt Dillon, and his father, Arthur Willis, portrayed by Hector Elizondo. And there's a scene where we just get a feel for the Willis family and Jeffrey's at home. I believe it's in the morning. It's a kitchen scene. And he gets underneath the sink to help his father, Arthur, who is a plumber, and uh, to help tighten some some of the pipes underneath the uh, kitchen sink. And you just get a sense between their convers- in, in their conversation just so quickly how close they are. They're a middle-class, middle-income type of family, and they help each other, and they love one another. And it's just established so quickly, just in a matter of four or five lines. And you're like, oh, well, that's how you do that. I get it. I understand this family. I know these characters. I understand this relationship. Let's move forward. Bill Bant, 25 minutes into this movie, and I already know I want this soundtrack done. I love 60s music. Yes, when I was up late one night, this was early on in my LA career. When I had moved out here, it's probably what, 96, 97. It's late night. You know, those infomercials were on the Time Life Music Collection. And yeah, I bought it. I got on the horn. I got on the phone and I bought my, and it's one of my prized collections of CDs, the Time Life uh, 60s music. It's just my favorite. So here's a sample from the track listing of the soundtrack to The Flamingo Kid. Just One Look, It's All Right, Chain Gang, a little Sam Cooke, Get a Job, Money, That's What I Want, Good Golly Miss Molly, Stand By Me, Run Around Sue, and (laughs) Dot Do Run Run. I mean, this soundtrack is loaded. It's amazing. It puts you right into the 60s. And here's a shout out to the University of Miami in this movie. How about that, Bill Pant? I know. One of uh, Jeffrey's buddies is named Steve, played by Brian McNamara. And uh, Steve didn't quite make the cut at the University of Miami. He uh, flunked out, apparently. They actually call it Miami University first. 
But uh, then he says University of Miami later. Hector Elizondo, again, just uh, so charming. Always has been. Really endearing as the father, as Arthur Willis in this. uh, Exudes warmth, wisdom, experience. I mean, when I see him, I still think pretty woman. But it was just a welcome sight to see him in this. And uh, he's quite good in this movie. And wait, wait, wait. Was that a John Turturro sighting (laughs) at the track in Yonkers? He works at Pinky's Pet Shop? I'm just going to leave it at that. It's amazing. I had a misconceived preconception of this film, Bill Bant, because I hadn't seen it forever. I couldn't remember a damn thing. So I went into it thinking this would be a coming-of-age film, but I thought it was going to be a bit of a, or I should say a bit bit more of a summer relationship comedy. And then I was like, oh, I'm I'm watching it. I'm like, oh, oh, okay, this is a fish-out-of-water story. Then I was watching it more, and I was like, Oh, okay, this is a movie about a father-son relationship. Then I was like, oh, no, this is about class separation. Then I was like, oh, no, it's learning lessons from blindly following a false mentor. No, it, you know what? In the end, it's really just about being faced with certain decisions as an 18-year-old and feeling the pressure to follow a certain path. It's about life choices that you know, you're put in a position to make when you're young. Do you listen to your father? Do you go to college? Do you listen to what you think a new mentor who is a salesman through or through? Do you simply follow your heart? Do you chase the girl? Do you chase your passion? Or lastly, do you not make any decision at all and just go where the wind takes you? It's difficult to know what you want at such a young age when you feel the whole world is still out there to explore and you you feel like you have all the time in the world. Bill Bant, I actually, I really enjoyed this. It's, it's fun. It's lighthearted. It's feel good. It really doesn't have any stakes. It doesn't particularly develop any one storyline to its potential, in my opinion. The writing is okay. It's fine. It has some fun moments. Because the quality supporting cast elevates the dialogue, and thus I had a good time. I'll say this. Matt Dillon is a natural. He just has it. He's raw. He looks fabulous. I buy him as the middle-class kid from Brooklyn just trying to make his way. The Flamingo Kid is an easy watch that I could complain about more, but I. it's just... Why? I just don't want to. Solid summer movie. What are your initial thoughts? Yeah, I think I'm going to echo a little bit of your uh, sentiments there. So The Flamingo Kid, yes, a coming-of-age movie when the boy or girl tries to get the boy or girl of his or her dreams. And yes, in this case, the boy does get the girl, but that is not what the main plot line of this movie is. I remember seeing an interview with Gary Marshall, and he said... He created Happy Days because when you go through life, you pick your friends, you pick your career, you pick your clothes, et cetera, et cetera. But the one thing you don't get to pick is your family, your mom, your dad, your brothers, sisters, grandparents, aunts, uncles. You get stuck with them. And that dynamic always fascinated Gary Marshall. And you see some of this in his film because there is a conflict between father, author, played by Hector Elizondo, as you said, and son, Jeffrey played by Matt Dillon. The father is looking out for his son and thinking he is trying to do the best for him, giving Jeffrey the opportunities he didn't have. He wants to make sure Jeffrey has a better life. But in doing this, he is pushing his son away, and he doesn't see it. He hasn't asked his son what he wants. He is blinded by this quest to make sure his son has a better life. Author just needs to trust that his son will make the right choices in his life. The father laid down the groundwork, and now he has to hope for the best. Another theme in this movie, in which you see a lot in Gary Marshall's movies, 
is the coming together of social classes. You have the middle class mixing it up with the upper class. You have seen this in many other of his movies, Overboard, Beaches, Pretty Woman, Princess Diaries. How are these groups going to fit together? How will it work? And we have Jeffrey, who was working at the Flamingo Beach Club, surrounded by the upper class, and someone has taken a liking to him, Phil Brody, played by Richard Crenna. And Phil has allowed him into his home, gotten him a promotion at the club, and given him gifts, and is feeding him this idea that he can fast-track him into success while knocking what author his dad has been trying to instill in Jeffrey with hard work and an education. And as someone that age who has never had the finer things in life, how do you not resist? And Jeffrey doesn't have to do something immoral or wrong to achieve this. That was, to me, what I I felt like the story was really about. I'm not a Jim Running person, but this movie certainly made me miss playing cards with friends. Uh, That's something I used to do a lot growing up. But the one game we used to play all the time as teams was Pinochle. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or ever played it. Yeah, I haven't played that game in forever. I'm not sure the Jim Rummy story was an exciting plot device, but it was okay. As you mentioned, the people in this movie, you have Marissa Tomei, Leon, Martha Gaiman, Carol Davis, and the Barbarian Brothers. All young actors we would see in other 80s films and television shows. We also have our 9 to 5, Hey, It's That Actor. Richard Stahl in this, coughing like mad. Overall, I do like this movie, but I did lose a little interest in some parts. I think overall it was pretty solid. Thanks for sharing, and I, I totally agree. We'll delve into it here. There's a lot to, to like about this movie, but that's what, you know, when I was talking about the stakes. We'll talk about that because I agree regarding the gin rummy game as a uh, kind of device for tension and especially uh, to bring the, the story to a climax at the end. So let's just keep the train rolling. Okay, moving on to favorite scenes or moments. What are some of our favorite scenes and moments from The Flamingo Kid? Start us off. Well, Bill Bant, I'm going to start with uh, a scene that's very close to the opening, and I, I'm calling it Welcome to El Flamingo Beach Resort. And we know that our protagonist, Jeffrey Willis, lives in Brooklyn, New York. It is the summer of 1963, and I'm going to get right to it here. He's recruited by a couple of old cronies, a couple of old friends, Steve and Hawk, who are looking for a third to join them in a gin rummy game at the elite El Flamingo Club at the Rockway in Long Island. And they drive across the bridge together, and they're talking about where they're at in their lives and their plans for college or no college in Steve's case, because uh, he had flunked out of the University of Miami, or in Hawk's case, he's just simply making too much money at the track to worry, be worried about going to college. Anyway, they arrive at El Flamingo Beach Club and Casino Resort, and although Jeffrey feels a bit overdressed for the occasion, he immediately is impressed by the view as they walk into the beach resort. They see all of the beautiful women sitting by the pool, sunbathing, and This is wonderful because Matt Dillon has this great dumb smile from ear to ear. There's people of all ages having fun in the sun, older people enjoying dance lessons. And Jeffrey notices a gin game happening across the way. 
and is like, Hey guys, is that the game we're going to get involved with? And the buddies are like, no, that's for the high rollers. That's like 500 bucks a game or something like that. 500 bucks, maybe it's just to get in the game. The fact of the matter is that Steve and Hawk are members of this club and Jeffrey is only their guest. And there's a hilarious moment where Jeffrey is trying to fit in and he's just trying to get comfortable in a beach chair by the pool. And Hawk Fisher Stevens looks at him and asks him, are you feeling all right? And Jeffrey is uncomfortable. And he's like, what? what? And he's like, well, it looks like you need to go to the bathroom. Do you need to go to the bathroom? <laughs> Jeffrey's like, what? No. Why would you ask me? that? He's like, because you look like you need to go to the bathroom. Meanwhile, Steve, their other friend, is talking to his girlfriend, Joyce Brody, and enter Carla, Joyce's cousin. Carla is played by Janet Jones, and she is the blonde babe from California, which Jeffrey immediately is admiring. And then we're introduced to Phyllis Brody, the rich trophy wife. She is Joyce's mother, and she asks who Jeffrey is, and it's made clear that he's just the card player, not a member. He's just a guest of Hawk and Steve's. And of course, Phyllis Brody, the mother and trophy wife, looks down upon Jeffrey immediately. And then we're introduced to some other uh, side characters. We're introduced to the human sundial, which is really funny. The super buff twin pool lifeguards. And then we get to watch the actual gin game that Jeffrey, Steve, and Hawk are involved in. They win against their opponents. And here's the moment I've been waiting for. Carla, a.k.a. Janet Jones, has decided to take a dip in the pool. She's quite the talented diver, by the way. And meanwhile, now Jeffrey has come out of the gin game and he's taking a break. And he looks fondly upon Carla from a distance as she swims to the side of the pool and gets out to dry herself off. And simply put... That's what dreams are made of. She's gorgeous. And the song Just One Look by Doris Troy is playing, which is on the nose, but it is perfect. And again, Matt Dillon as Jeffrey. He just has that dumb smile come across his face again. And this is the setup. It's just fun. It's pretty. And we get to know the players. I love it. There's also the introduction of this kid with a toy car on the beach, which is really funny because, again, Jeffrey, after having played the gin game, that's kind of he's served his purpose and they've won some money, he and his friends. He goes down to the beach to get comfortable again in a beach chair and pulls a chair up next to a couple of attractive ladies trying to be cool. And he's clearly not cool. He doesn't look cool. Then he is just hanging out when this little kid walks up to him, this chubby little kid with this toy car that makes a noise when you roll the wheels underneath it. And he just stands directly next to Jeffrey and he keeps rolling the wheels. And Jeffrey's like, doesn't actually say it out loud, but you can tell his facial expression is saying, get the hell out of here, kid. I'm trying to hang out with these ladies over here. Anyway, um, so yeah, I just, it's a great setup. And it again, I mentioned this earlier, the location is outstanding. The escapism and you're put right into uh, the tone and the mood. You know, fun in the sun. It's summer. Yeah, good stuff. Perfect setup for the whole premise of where we're going to go through the rest of the movie, which is going to really take place at the El Flamingo Beach Club. And we meet all the main players and we meet Jeffrey's uh, girl of his dreams, Carla, the girl that he'll be kind of chasing throughout the movie. And uh, we'll see where it goes, too, because right away 
Jeffrey's friends tell him, yeah, whatever. Everybody's chasing after her and no one, no one has any luck, but we see that Carla has a little liking to Jeffrey. So we'll, we'll see where that goes. So yeah, good set of the film. We meet all basically the main characters at that point and uh, we're off and running. That just brought up a couple other thoughts I had just real quickly to establish this for our listeners is that if you haven't seen this movie or you need to be reminded, this is part of the setup where you just get a a really solid idea of who these characters are is, you know, immediately we know that Jeffrey, Steve and Hawk are great, you know, friends or they're at least very good friends and have a history and from school, et cetera. But there is a class separation. Uh, You know, Steve and Hawk belong to this club. They dress a little nicer. And we know then specifically that Jeffrey comes from a middle class family, uh, a little bit lower income and is not used to this type of atmosphere. So you see that inherent awkwardness from him. And it's interesting that, of course, he takes a liking to the beautiful Janet Jones immediately or Carla, as I should say. And we find out through the dialogue that Carla is actually a couple of years older. Jeffrey's 18. He's just graduated high school. It's the summer before college, should he choose to go to college. Carla is already a sophomore in college. And instead of just Jeffrey fawning over her, she is the one that is quite, I guess, not forward, but honest about her feelings for him immediately. She thinks he's cute and is very much uh, very open and comfortable being around and showing and giving uh, Jeffrey a nice, bright smile when she gets the chance. And it's kind of fun to see the tables turned instead of this young high school or teenage boy full of hormones going after the girl. It's the girl kind of pursues him in this situation, but you get that class separation here, the early establishment of maybe a budding relationship. Yeah. And then the gin game, the gin rummy game that's going to be present throughout the film. So set up, there you go. Yeah. And then at the end of this day with Jeffrey at the club, um, he helps a woman with her car who's able to fix it. And he gets offered a job on the spot, parking cars, and he takes the job. So that keeps him around the Flamingo Club for the rest of the film. There you go. For me, it's moment. I'll say moments. And you kind of already mentioned this a little bit, but that's fine. And I was surprised because usually a running gag like this doesn't really do anything for me. But yeah, little Peter. Oh, my God. I think I laughed every time I saw him. And he is maybe six-year-old kid, a little bit overweight, and he appears almost before every major moment. Not well in some of the you know moments throughout the film, and I don't know why. I laughed every time I saw him on the screen. Yeah, the first time you see him is when Jeffrey is trying to put the moves on the two girls on the beach, and Peter's just stand there with his car. We see Peter again later on with his mom when they're leaving for the day for Jeffrey gets a job there. We see Jeffrey standing in the light of the tanning man, the man who literally has mirrors surrounding his body and every human sundial. Yeah. (laughs) Every hour he turns along with the sun so he can get the perfect tan. At one point he's standing next to uh, Phyllis, Phyllis Brody, which we find out is Phil's husband, who tries Phil, who tries to take Jeffrey under his wing. And then right before the big gin rummy game at the end, he's standing at the gin rummy table with his car and Phil's like, what, yeah. what is he doing? Was this a kindergarten or something? Every time I saw him, he's funny. He, yeah, he ends the movie too. There's even a scene with him dancing in this little tuxedo. He says nothing in this movie. He does not utter a, a word. 
And then, of course, the whole time I'm watching this kid, I'm like, I know I have seen him in something else. And I will bring that up later in facts and trivia. Great. So I just like little Peter. The end credits roll over a shot of him running down to the beach. I mean, yep. it's all about Peter. I, I'm trying to decide which is my favorite moment when he makes an appearance. And maybe it is when he's standing next to Richard Krenna and just annoying the crap out of him. It's really funny because Krenna doesn't know what to do with him. Right. Richard Krenna does play Phil Brody, whom Bill has already met, uh, brought up and, and is uh, one of the main characters in this film. Rich guy who happens to be, or at least we're led to believe, is very good at gin rummy and is the owner of a fancy motor sports car dealership in town. So great call on Peter the Kid. Moving on, I'm just going to go into uh, what I'm calling a father-son confrontation. And you talked about this, Bill Ban, and I appreciate it because that helps me with this. Now, Jeffrey as Bill said, has gotten a job as a parking attendant at El Flamingo Beach Club. And he's been spending a lot of time at the club, obviously working, making a lot of money, making a lot of tips. And this is not approved of by his father, whom had already set up a job opportunity for Jeffrey at an engineering office. Jeffrey said, nope, uh, I think I'd rather hang out at the club and work there where I can maybe flirt with Carla. And so he's like, I'm going to work at the beach club. He ends up hitting it off with Carla. And because Carla is the cousin of Joyce Brody, who's dating Steve, well, they end up going to dinner at the Brody's house, which is a very, very nice home. And they go to dinner and that's where Jeffrey ingratiates himself to Phil Brody. And we learned that Phil Brody, again, is a very wealthy man who is playing this gin rummy game against a few other gentlemen and has been taking all of their money, basically. And it, they, we are led to believe that maybe Phil has some interest in maybe taking over the club at some point. But regardless, he takes a liking to Jeffrey at this dinner and they become pals in a way. And now back at the club. Phil has taken Jeffrey under his wing and becomes a mentor of sorts. Well, clearly Jeffrey looks up to Phil because this guy has made uh, his way and it makes a ton of money. So he looks at him as a role model of sorts. And now basically the bottom line is Brody has basically been grooming Jeffrey, telling him that, yeah, you know what? You're not a parking attendant anymore. I'm going to make a call to the owner. You're going to be a cabana boy. Great. And then they spend more time together. And then he suggests to Jeffrey that, well, he's got the smarts. He's gregarious. He's a good looking kid. You know, he should, he could be a great salesman. You should become a car salesman. At least he kind of leads him down that path and just really pumps up Jeffrey and builds his confidence. And then Jeffrey comes home a little later one night after work and mom's been cooking dinner and his father, Arthur, is touching up a model sailboat and his sister, Nikki, is practicing her oboe. Not one lesson. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> she's squeaking away on her oboe. little inside joke there with Bill Bant. Listen to our Ferris Bueller Day Off uh, podcast. Anyway, his sister, Nikki, tells them all that she's gotten Jeffrey another interview with Columbia University. But Jeffrey has different plans and says, well, nope, now I won't need uh, need college. And this comes as a surprise to his dad. Arthur says, well, what exactly will you be needing, Jeffrey? And Jeffrey's like, well, I'm going to go into sales. 
I've been talking to Phil Brody and that's what it's all about now. It's about making that easy money. And he starts using the lingo like I could sell two cars in a month and make my nut because that's the, the lingo that Brody has been using. And Jeffrey says that college is overrated. And Arthur, his father, listens intently, but has his own ideas and gives him, he does give him the time to speak, but he's incredulous. And Jeffrey goes on to describe Phil Brody as the king of motor cars. And Arthur tells Jeffrey, well, you know what? You're still a kid. You don't understand anything and you need to get an education. And there's actually a funny moment in here where the mom comes in and tells Nikki to keep just playing her oboe to kind of like soften things here. And it just sounds horrible. And Arthur's immediately like, no, no, just stop practicing and goes back to Jeffrey and says, look, I may just be a plumber, but I put in a good day's work. And that's what a good plumber does. And that I, I have dreams, too. But his dream is that his children become educated. That's what he wants his kids to do, to have, to get that education, to have better opportunities as a result. And Arthur does that typical establishing that it's his house, it's his rules. And at the end of the scene, Jeffrey actually stands up to him and says, you know what, I'm sick of telling you what I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to do. This is my life. Let me live it. I like this scene because, first of all, Hector Elizondo plays it perfectly. He plays the levels perfectly as this middle-class, blue-collar, hardworking man who's a plumber, just trying to pay the bills and make sure that his kids have the opportunities, maybe that he didn't have or to get that education he never got so they get a better opportunity. But Jeffrey is rebelling. And again, Hector does, you know, Hector Elizondo in his performance, he doesn't just fly off the cuff. He doesn't uh, lose his mind and he doesn't go ballistic. He you know, keeps his temper for a bit until eventually when Jeffrey's saying, I'm not going, you know, I'm not going to college. That's that. Arthur's like, no, you're going to do what I tell you to do. This is my house. Anyway, I like the levels that Hector Elizondo plays as Arthur. And, you know, he holds steadfast to his beliefs. And he's passionate. He cares about his kids, and especially Jeffrey in this case. And then after the scene, I'm just going to call it this really nice moment when he goes into Jeffrey's bedroom after Jeffrey's gone to sleep. And Arthur looks at a photo that was taken of Jeffrey and Phil Brody, his new mentor, you can imagine from Arthur's perspective being like looking at this guy going, is this guy kind of like a surrogate father? Like, is he, is he now taking over the role of leading my son down the wrong path? Uh, and I don't like the direction he's heading in. So you see all of this on Hector Elizondo's face. And that's my point is why I'm calling out this particular scene is because of his performance. And I enjoyed, I actually thought it was a good choice in the writing that Jeffrey stands up to him and calmly says, I'm sick of you telling me what to do. I'm 18 years old. This is my life. Let me live it. And he says it calmly, not because they have a loving relationship, father, son here in this situation. And they're not about to go at each other's throats, but they each have their points. And uh, yeah, I'd like the writing in the scene and the performances. Yeah, it's a good scene. And the way that Hector plays it when Jeffrey's trying to explain his grand plan of becoming a salesman and Hector yeah. just has that look of who the hell's feeding you this shit? What the hell? I could see it as a father. You're trying to instill all this hard work, beliefs, education, and it's getting all trampled on in a five minute conversation, probably secretly crushing him. And he's got to do a last ditch effort to try to save this, to try mm -hmm. to make his son understand 
you might be going down the wrong path. At least go to school first and then maybe do this. Or at least yeah. you have an education to, to back you up in case things go awry. Jeffrey doesn't want to hear it. He's after the easy money. He's seeing how the lifestyle is and he wants a piece of it and you can't blame him. Yeah, it's that instant gratification thing. And it's normal for a teenager to want those things. And I think Elizondo, you can see that in his face because Elizondo portrays that wisdom. He has it all in the look in his face of a father that has had this experience where he will allow his son to make a certain mistakes because he is young and he has to go through these things. And he's probably been there himself and been tempted. But once, yes, like you said, he gets under the wing of this mentor of sorts or this uh, this man who seems to be making false promises most likely it's like Hector Elizondo is like you just don't see it you're too young and too brash uh and too impulsive just to to know it I know from experience this is not the direction you want to go in you need to get that education well acted scene so for me for my I guess would be my first favorite scene and you kind of mentioned a little bit setting up uh, your scene is Jeffrey is invited to dinner by Carla at her uncle Phil's house. And we've mentioned Phil Brody is Richard Crenna and Richard Crenna has taken a liking to Jeffrey. There's a one moment within that whole sequence that I just love. And it's Jeffrey using the bathroom. I just found it funny because it's the whole middle class trying to understand the upper class world. So just to set it up. So he goes to this dinner with his friend, Steve, who is dating Phil's daughter, Joyce. If we mentioned either, so it's Brian McNamara, and then Joyce is uh, played by Carol Davis. And let's just say the Brody's house is, uh, it's a pretty nice house, and it's pretty big. Jeffrey actually asks Steve, who else lives here? That's how big it is. So before dinner, Jeffrey has some alone time with Phil, and they discuss their love of cards, uh, mostly Jim Rummy. And Phil is teaching Jeffrey some pointers. And then Carla comes in and announces that dinner is ready. So as they're about to head to the dining room, Phil asks Jeffrey if he needs to use the facilities. And Jeffrey's not 100% sure what Phil is asking. So Phil asks him again if he needs to use the toilet. So Jeffrey's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. Phil shows Jeffrey the facilities and he heads to the dining room as Jeffrey steps into the bathroom. So first we have Jeffrey in the bathroom and he's preening himself in the mirror. He wants to look all good and present himself to Carla and the Brody family. And while he's fixing himself up in front of the mirror, he sees what looks like a little jar of candy right under the mirror. And he picks up one of these. They look like giant pink M&Ms and just pops it right into his mouth. And he realizes right away that was a mistake. He probably popped a bath salt and proceeds to spit it out into the trash. And then he turns to use the toilet. And while he's standing there, he sees another jar. And it's filled with all these like cool shell-shaped, say this five times real fast, shell-shaped soaps. And he checks them out and he takes one of them. And he looks around the bathroom to make sure no one's checking him out. And he actually sticks it into his jacket pocket. And as soon as that happens, we can hear from outside the bathroom, Phil and his wife, Phyllis, having a conversation. And Phyllis is making it clear that she's not happy that Jeffrey is there for dinner. She says she knows nothing about him. 
And all she knows is that Jeffrey could be in the bathroom stealing some soap. And at that moment, Jeffrey feels like he's busted and takes the soap out of his jacket and puts it back in the dish. You know, they ask where Jeffrey is and Jeffrey says he'll be out in a moment. And then he goes to the bathroom and he turns around and he goes to wash his hands. And when he washed his hands, I thought maybe he was going to get burned about this early because there was like decorative towels there on the, the washcloth bar. He like pats his hands down. Right. Yeah. And then like dries out the sink, make it seem like he was not in there at all. And then he proceeds to have dinner. And of course there's a whole bunch of different things with dinner that he, you know, what's the right for? Cause there's a food that brought out that he's never had before. And so you get into all that other stuff too. But the bathroom moment I just thought was the best because it's really going to set up how uncomfortable he is in that moment. And just the class separation between the two. Who keeps little candies in their bathroom? Well, they're not candies. You know, look at these cool little soaps. And he's trying his best to almost hide that he's there. The fact that the way that he just dries out the sink. Yeah, if you get water on the counter, you're going to clean that up. But to dry out the sink also. So you you can tell he's just really nervous. And just part of him is just thinking this was a mistake. Even though him and Phil seem to hit it off. But with Phyllis saying what she's saying... It made it somewhat awkward to him. Pretty cool scene. Great call. It's a fun scene all around. From the beginning when Steve and Jeffrey have arrived at the Brody home and they go into sort of the the den area, Bro, uh, Phil Brody's den and Phil's sitting there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Phil gets up and offers them beer. He's got his own little bar and that he's got beer on tap, but he only has Lowenbrow, the oh, German yeah. beer. And Steve keeps asking for different kinds of beer and he's like you're getting low and brow you got low and getting, brow low and brow is good you're having low and brow but it's an interesting scene because it was leading me down a different couple of paths as i was watching it that scene in the bathroom is very amusing matt Dillon is great he's so nervous uh you called out some wonderful moments but then later on at the dinner table when well, we've already seen the fact that Phil Brody has taken a liking to Jeffrey and is showing him some tips and tricks when it comes to the game of gin rummy. But then later on at the table, it seems as though, well, he's really taken a liking to Jeffrey because he offers to promote him from parking attendant to cabana boy. And I'm thinking, what's Phil Brody's agenda here? Is he making a play here? Is he ingratiating himself to Jeffrey for... Is he, you know, playing chess here, like kind of looking, you know, uh, four moves ahead here? And I'm going, I wonder how this is going to play out. If What's his end game here? What's Phil Brody's play here in really taking this young middle class kid under his wing? I'm going to get into that a little bit later. But yeah, it's, it's a fun scene. Richard Krenner is great. We love Richard Krenner, right? Oh, yeah. Again, class separation, the awkwardness. I was wondering again also is like, Oh boy, he's going to be, you know, Phyllis Brody may take advantage of the situation in order to embarrass Jeffrey so that he never comes back. Their daughter, Joyce, doesn't seem to be a big fan of Jeffrey either. I was like, is she going to embarrass him any further? Um, Although his buddy Steve would be on his side and obviously Carla is on his side. But I thought maybe she would be extremely embarrassed by Jeffrey's behavior. Maybe that would become an obstacle of sorts. But none of that really seemed to play out. But regardless, the scene itself is fun. 
for my next scene, I'm I'm jumping right to the end. Did you want to just go into another scene that might take place before the end? Yeah, I do. And um, you talked about the first confrontation between father and son. I actually like the second one. That's funny. I almost put those two together. Oh, okay. I almost put them together and was going to do both, but I just went with the first one. So this is great. Go for it. You know, we're seeing the dynamics of the El Flamingo Beach Club and Hawk and, and Steve and Jeffrey are friends and Jeffrey's become friends with one of the other parking attendants. Um, his name's Fortune and is played by uh, Leon. And we find out that Leon is going to Notre Dame to play basketball. And Hawk, Fisher Stevens, hears about this horse. So he gets inside tip about a horse. So he's telling his closest friends about it. So they're planning on going to the track together, better than this horse, make a ton of money. And Jeffrey lets Leon in on this bet. So the four of them go to the racetrack, put money on the horse. Well, Leon puts a lot of money on the horse. I think it was like four hundred dollars on this. Yeah, horse. I think so it's five hundred bucks, which is like, oh, that must have been a lot of money at that time. That's nineteen sixty three money we're talking about here. Well, the horse does not win; they lose all the money. So they go to a diner to end their night, and they end up getting into a fight. All of them go to jail. Jeffrey's father bails Jeffrey out, and earlier that day, Arthur had come by to the Flamingo to take Jeffrey to dinner. And Jeffrey refused because he's like, I'm going out with my friends. And he's like, well, what are you guys doing? And he's like, well, we're going to go to the racetrack. And he's like, oh, so you want to go to the racetrack with your friends instead of spend some time with your family at dinner? And Phil comes out and they kind of have a confrontation. And then Arthur asks one more time, you come to dinner with us? And Jeffrey's like, no. So they go off. So now Arthur's pissed because none of this would happen if he's just come to dinner. And they get into the car and Arthur's, you know, telling Jeffrey kind of, how upset he is with him. He's like, you know, you think this is fun hanging out with your hoodlum friends, getting into fights. And he's like, I don't want you coming into this area anymore. And he's almost kind of telling him you're done with this job. And Jeffrey's not hearing it. And he says, why, you know, why can't I have hang out with these friends? Why can't I live this lifestyle? Why do I need to live in a crappy house for the rest of my life? And that angers Arthur who he hits him in the face. And now we have some serious tension between the two of them in the car. And they're driving home and Arthur's trying to ease the tension and ask him the time. And Jeffrey won't even talk to him. He just basically just sticks his watch in his face. So they get back to the house and Arthur tries to apologize for hitting him. And that's when he says the line that you said at the beginning of the, of the movie. He's like, finding out what you do well and finding out what makes you happy and if God is smiling on you, they're both doing the same thing. And now Jeffrey kind of doesn't want to hear what his dad's saying. He's kind of forgiven him at this point. But now there's there's definitely a divide. And Arthur doesn't know what to do next. Everything's on my son. And I'm going to have to see how he's going to play this out. And unfortunately, it comes to the fact that Jeffrey's going to move out for the rest of the summer. And maybe take this job with Phil. So, yeah, it's kind of an emotional moment, you know, father, father, son dynamics. And, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things, you know, being a parent and you're just trying to always instill the right things into your kids and you just hope that it sticks. And then you have a moment like that 
luckily my kids aren't old enough that I'd, I'd have to worry about that call from the police and saying, hey, your kids got in a fight or something bad had happened. He has to come bail them out. But um, you know, kids are going to make mistakes. You just hope they learn from their mistakes. And this is what Arthur's hoping that Jeffrey's going to see the light, that what he's telling him is the truth. But right now it is looking pretty grim. 100%. It's a bit of an emotional sequence. No question about it. I love the chemistry between Matt Dillon and Hector Elizondo. I believe them as father and son. When Arthur, Hector Elizondo, bails Jeffrey out and they get into the car and they begin that discussion, and you can see Jeffrey's frustration with everything because they're both looking at each other going, don't you understand I'm trying to do what I think is right? coming from totally different vantage points. You know, it's just different perspectives. It's age versus youth. It's experience versus innocence. And they're just going to be on opposing ends. And it's hard to find some meeting in the middle or to have some sort of compromise. That moment when Arthur strikes Jeffrey in the head, basically just smacks him upside the head. He immediately regrets it. You see it on Elizondo's face. He has to digest it. And then it's that quiet ride home. And then he tries, like you said, to kind of break the tension by asking what time it is, et cetera. But they get home and he tries to apologize to Jeffrey for hitting him. And you know he's sorry because you can know, and this is, again, a credit to Elizondo's performance and the character, the way it's shaped, is you know he's not an abusive father. You know that. It's just that he lashed out because he's a very proud father. And despite the fact that it may be a middle-class home or whatever stigma you might attach to it or what other people might believe, He's very proud of what he's built. And when you have his son, Jeffrey, who's very disrespectful to that and all the effort that his father has put into this home and, and this home that he's created for his son and his daughter, he lost control. So he tried to apologize. But then, yeah, later on, you think, oh, it's going to, again, be an explosion from Matt Dillon. Like he's going to just fly off the handle and be like, that's it. I'm done. You hit me. I'm out. But instead, he just calmly goes into his room and starts packing a bag. And Elizondo doesn't even realize it. He's like, wait, what are you packing for? He's like, I'm moving out. And he's like, wait, what? You're moving out? Where you can? And in that moment, you can see the fear on Elizondo's face, too, where it's like, oh, no, I'm losing him. I'm losing him. And I would imagine as a parent, and you, could, you would know more than I, Bill Bant, maybe, that you do, you're trying to do everything you can, do right, and to instill those lessons, as you've said. But sometimes... The kid's just got to figure it out on his own and you got to let him go. But he's really fearful for his son and he feels like then it's his fault. And that's the worst if you think you did something to drive your child away. So a lot of levels being played there. That's, uh, again, some nice performances. Yeah, it's frustrating as a parent because you have gone through this, you have experienced it, and you know mm -hmm. what your kid is going through. And you're hoping you're the parent that is going to be able to make the breakthrough and explain it to your kid. And your kid will turn around and say, yes, dad, I get it. I will follow your advice. Never happens. But hopefully, though, they will come to realize what you are saying. Since I've had kids, I don't know how many times I've called my parents and just said, sorry, <laughs> just because of <laughs> moments. Sure. Like, <laughs> That's great. But yeah, it's tough. It's rough. You know, you have these kids are that are under your care and 
sooner or later they're going to go off on their own. You just, man, you, you just really hope you just gave them a solid foundation and then they'll, uh, they'll be able to run with it and, and have a good life. Yeah. And you're afraid, you know, you want to be able to, to let go at, to a certain extent and trust that your kids will make the right decision. So you kind of let them out of the house, you let them run free, but there's always a fear that there's dangers out there and your impulsive kid might make the wrong decision and it could, could be costly. I, I, it's interesting when you talk about perspective and now you as a parent and you're apologizing to your parents. For me, I'm about to turn 50 this year. And I think about what I was like at 18. I often reminisce now about the quote unquote, good old days. And I was literally a different person. I was a different person than I am now. Mm -hmm. I thought differently about everything. I acted differently. I reacted differently. I had different wants and needs and goals and loves and passions. And, you know, I looked at my parents differently, my sister differently, my friends were different, you know, all of it. I was a different person inside and out. And it's fascinating to think, wow, how could I still be in the same body, but think so differently and feel so differently about life? Yeah, we're always evolving and changing. And sometimes nowadays, you know, people get punished for things that they do in the past, but they have to realize we all change. Sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse. The person that you met today is not the same person from 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It's not going to be the same person 10 years from now either. Right. It's weird to think about. And this was brought up on another podcast I was listening to, actually, the scenario of, you know, what would you do if you could go back in time and meet your younger self? What would you say? And I know I could impart all the wisdom I have gained in the last 32 years. And I know my younger self still wouldn't listen to me. Exactly. It's a different person. (laughs) You You can go down a rabbit hole with that. All right. um, So you wanted to get into the last scene? Yeah, because, you know, fittingly enough, let's wrap up this arc, which I think was between father and son. And at the end, our protagonist, Jeffrey, uh, has realized that, yeah, home is where the heart is, but he wants to come back and make amends with his father and then move forward again. But uh, he knows he has to go back to uh, see his family. And he knows his family happens to be having dinner at Louis Fish House, his father's favorite restaurant, Louis Fish House. Any fish you wish. <laughs> That's like their it. motto. And it does sound like the perfect name for a family-owned restaurant that uh, I know my family probably would be regulars at. Or it's just a fun name. And Jeffrey shows up and the family's enjoying their dinner. And they're mostly happy to see him except for his father, Arthur, who is still hurt by their previous engagements. And Jeffrey goes to his father off to the side. And Arthur kind of says, well, how, how's your Mr. Brophy? He can't, get, he can't get the name right. It's Mr. Brody, but he says Brophy. And Jeffrey's like, you know what? Summer's over. Then Arthur looks out into the bay and is like looking over the ocean and says, I, I'm just watching another ship boxing compass and venturing out to sea. And Jeffrey says, it's nice to know the ship can always come home. And Arthur says, well, if you talk nice to the lighthouse keeper, you can always come home. And Jeffrey says, well, if the lighthouse keeper didn't yell so much. And Arthur's like, well, the, the lighthouse keeper, what, wait, what the hell are we doing here? Which is great because they're like speaking in bro code to each other, trying in metaphor. And it's like, what, what are we doing? And they just say, okay, we're back. We're together. It's okay. We forgive each other. And 
they are about to hug and they both look back to see all the people that are there, including their own family. They're like, let's not make a scene. People are looking. Let's not make a scene. And then Jeffrey just grabs his dad and gives him a big hug. And I'm almost about to cry just thinking about it because it did tug at my heartstrings. It wasn't like a It's a very short scene and it happens kind of quickly, probably a little too quickly, but I, I like it. I like to see the father and son come back at the end. It comes full circle and uh, we tie a bow on it. And it's a nice ending where Jeffrey realized the error of his ways. And Arthur, his father, realized he made some mistakes as well. And they hug it out. The end. Love it. Yeah, it's a nice touching scene at the end. And I did love them speaking in code because earlier in the movie, um, Jeffrey and Carla are at the Flamingo and he's explaining to her about the boats and what they have to do in order to get through the channel to go out to whatever country they're going to ship their stuff to. So it's a good callback to that earlier scene. It's pretty quick, but it does work. I do like it. Yeah. Hey, let's take a quick break and hear from our friends over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Hey, do you enjoy movies? If so, you're going to want to check out the Retro Movie Roundtable, the podcast where we watch movies and then talk about them. We're inviting you to join us as we dive into beloved movies from 10 years ago and beyond. We cover every genre and every era. The show is fun and personal, but also insightful and informative. The Retro Movie Roundtable is available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Please check them out over at the Retro Movie Roundtable Podcast. Now back to our show. Okay, so let's move on to Swiss Cheese and Complaints. Why do we call it Swiss Cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have holes. Yes, and if it doesn't fall under Swiss cheese, we just file a complaint with the complaint department. So, Jason, I know you have some things. You can get right into it. Well, my first little complaint was that if I was 18 and I was dating a girl like Carla Sampson for a summer, sure, I know I'd have to work my job, but I think I'd probably spend every other waking moment with that girl. I'm sorry. She's a smoke show. I'd take advantage of every second. (laughs) I mean, look, I appreciate the fact that the story has to have different things going on and levels and such and such. But the relationship between Jeffrey and Carla was a little superficial. Not a lot going on there. I thought there would be more obstacles in that. And it's just like they show some nice little montage scenes of them doing some fun activities and you get the sense, but you don't really get the sense that they're falling in love and that there's going to be any sort of real heartbreak. I'm going to get that into that in my overall complaint. But I was just like, why isn't this movie just about him pining away for this girl? She's gorgeous. Like she's this older girl that's totally into him and be like totally head over heels for this girl. I was like, is he going to just run after her and pull a goodwill hunting kind of ending, kind of just fly to California at the end. But anyway. Yeah. It is interesting that it's set up to be the A story. And then you find out it's the B story because she's not even in the last 15, 20 minutes of the movie. It's almost a C story. Yeah. 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 I could almost say C story. No, I think it is like a B story. It is. I'm just saying it's just so like, 
on the surface. Like nothing, there's no real stakes with that relationship at all. She's sad when she, when he, you know, when she's got to leave at the end of the summer, but okay. And then she's gone. Huh, moving on. <laughs> now it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know what to think about that. I was like, do I like the fact that it's not a boy chases girl movie and there's more to it than that? Or was I disappointed that it wasn't a boy chases girl movie? I'm still on the fence on that one. I hear you. And I'm just trying to figure out what that relationship or storyline in this movie, how did that move the story forward? Or did it enhance the story in any way? Was there supposed to be, or was it just supposed to be a, some, uh, a fun summer fling? And that's all it was. And great. Two pretty young people hooking up. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So we're introduced to Stephen Hawk, who are from the old neighborhood. So what happened? So Stephen Hawk just come into the neighborhood to find Jeffrey to play in this Jim Rummy game. How do they know that Jeffrey's that good at Jim Rummy? How long ago did they leave? I just had a ton of questions. Oh, it's a great question. That. I okay, so I just made some assumptions there. Valid questions. All to, uh, totally, totally understand. Mm-hmm. My assumption right off the bat was that they were at least one year ahead of Jeffrey in school. Uh, because clearly, oh, right, 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 right. Because, because clearly, Steve had already flunked out of the University of Miami. Hawk correct. decided not to go to college and was just betting the ponies. Okay, that's a good point there. So they hadn't really spent time together in a while because I'm assuming Jeffrey was still in senior year of high school. Mm-hmm. But my other assumption is that they had played cards together before, like they had a side game and they knew that Jeffrey was a good card player. I just assumed that. So maybe they it's all not made clear. To, they all maybe went to school together and they met through cards. I, I assumed they that Steve here, I'll just put it this way that Steve and Hawk were both a year ahead of Jeffrey in high school. I agree with that. And that they hung out. They were friends despite being a year ahead of Jeffrey. They were still friends in high school and would hang out outside of school playing cards knowing and knew that Jeffrey was talented at playing cards. And so they come back swinging back into the old neighborhood or whatnot. I don't even know if that's not, it's not Stephen Hawk's neighborhood. Actually, they just come back. They go swinging into Brooklyn looking for Jeffrey, knowing where his, you know, regular hangouts are. Mm -hmm. And they find him on the corner and say, Hey, we need you for this game. Come with us. It'll be fun. I think I was taking that too literal. Like they grew up together and both Steve's family and Hawk's family somehow hit it big and they moved out. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, his dad's a plumber. I mean, that's good money. Oh yeah. Sure. They decided to stay. I gotcha. I'm following that thread. I like what you're saying a little bit better. That was my assumption anyway. Yeah. Uh, So I'm just going to go through my overall complaint here on a few different levels. Uh, And that's just that, there was real potential here to develop stakes within a few of these storylines, but it just didn't really happen. One I mentioned was Jeffrey's relationship with Carla, that he doesn't really fall in love with the girl. That's a couple years older and they have a nice summer fling and it's sad goodbye, but that's it. There's no like heartbreak. There's no drama. There's no obstacles in the relationship. The class separation never comes to any fruition. She's cool with that. She doesn't care about who he is or where he comes from. And, Everything was fine. I mean, she, again, shed a tear when she had to leave at the end of the summer, but that was it. So no stakes, no obstacles, done. Then the father-son relationship, 
that was really kind of the only arc for me that it built nicely and it had a conclusion, a resolution at the end. Now, although with Jeffrey's family, they missed a bet with Nikki, the sister. I thought she could have been utilized better. I think she's kind of filler in certain scenes. There's a nice moment where she yeah, comes, could have cut her out. She comes to bring clothes to Jeffrey at the club when after he's moved out of the house and now is basically he's sleeping at the club. And Sister Nikki brings more clothes for him, but there's no real like she's not putting them back together. He and his father, like she's not acting acting as a, a go-between, passing messages or trying to encourage Jeffrey to make a decision one way or another or impart any kind of wisdom. She's just kind of doesn't serve any purpose. Now, when it comes to the Jeffrey and Phil Brody relationship, we see Brody really grooming Jeffrey and there's some nice development in the beginning because it's leading you down this path or me at least. And I mentioned this earlier that it's like, Oh, what's Phil Brody's, goal here in grooming Jeffrey. What is he what is he planning on doing? Is it because he Jeffrey's the son he never had? Is it because he's planning on manipulating or using Jeffrey towards a certain end? I thought Phil Brody maybe potentially was really trying to win all the money in the gin rummy games from Colonel Eastman, who's the owner of the El Flamingo Club, and then to end up just taking ownership of the the club. And then, I don't know, I, it, there were some things here where I was like, Jeffrey and Brody's relationship built to a certain point, and then it just cut off after Jeffrey finally came to him and said, look, I'm ready. I want to be a salesman. And for whatever reason, Brody's in a bad mood because Jeffrey pulled him out of a dance class with some hot women. And Brody's like, oh, no, no, no. You're going to start off as a stock boy. And then their whole relationship goes from 100 back down to zero. And then the whole final act or whatever with the gin rummy game happens. So I, that relationship just did not culminate in a rewarding way anyway for me. So the card game itself, those stakes. See, this, I'm, this is my through line here with my complaints in these different storylines, the, the stakes. So Jeffrey sees that Phil Brody, who's been, he's the cock of the walk here. He's the king of the gin rummy game. He's winning all the time, getting all the money from everybody else. Well, Jeffrey realizes that Phil Brody has been cheating all along. He's been getting signals and signs from this guy, Sid, who's a big Sid, who's been watching. And so Jeffrey knows now that Phil's been cheating all along. And great. So Jeffrey gets in spoiler alert. Yes. Jeffrey then ends up getting into this game and beats Phil at gin rummy and gets all the money back for the guys that have been losing to Phil all along. And then I'm like, well, great. But are there any real consequences after that? Jeffrey tells the guys that Jeffrey, uh, that Phil was cheating the whole time and they kind of gang up at the end. And, but there's not really, it just doesn't feel like, there's any real weight here. Like nobody's really winning or losing that much. And I'm not sure if what, what did Jeffrey get out of that except for getting one up on Phil Brody because, but why, like what does Jeffrey stand to gain from that? Not a lot of stakes nor consequences here with the whole gin rummy game at the end for me outside of, 
the poor bastards that got cheated out of their money earlier, they get their money back and then some. So again, in the end, Jeffrey has a nice summer making some good money and has a summer affair with a beautiful girl, was led down the wrong path by a smooth-talking rich guy, and in the end turns the table on the rich guy and decides he needs to be back with his father and his family. And it's just, okay, that's the end. It's just easy. It's all, everything just kind of happens and it kind of smoothed over and that's it. So my complaint was they had opportunities to present obstacles and real stakes with either these relationships and or devices with the the game in particular that just never really came to fruition. Yeah, I'm with you on that. That's why I kind of felt I got a little bored at some points because I didn't feel like anything interesting was happening. Thank you. Right. And even the game itself wasn't exciting to me. And I don't even know if it was the fact that I don't really know how to play gin rummy or I didn't really feel what the stakes were for that game. I mean, was Phil really going to try to cheat out the owner and buy the club? That was really like, we we don't know that for sure. It's not clear. And what is Jeffrey playing for? And the fact they went all that money back in one day, they've been playing all summer and getting crushed. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Jeffrey's not putting his money up to play. Nope. No. Phil just tries to play it off. And then Jeffrey's like, well, just so you know, I told them they've been cheating the whole time. Maybe the light bulb went on. It's like, shit, my dad was right. I need to go find him and hug him. Well, that's it for me for complaints. Okay. We can move on then. And we can move on to, hey, it's that actor. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor you have seen in many other films. An actor making their big screen debut. Or an actor makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. So who do we choose this week? We've mentioned a lot of actors in this movie already. So <laughs> I don't know. Who is left, Jason? Who's our, hey, it's Absolutely. that actor? Absolutely. So this week, Bill Bant, our, hey, it's that actor is Frank Campanella, who plays the role of Colonel Cal Eastland. Yeah. And we have not mentioned him much. I just briefly mentioned him just now. Colonel Cal Eastland is the owner of El Flamingo Beach Resort, and uh, he has been on the losing end of the gin rummy game with Phil Brody. Uh, He does have a couple of nice scenes, but he is portrayed by Frank Campanella, a tall gentleman, six foot five, who was born on March 12th, 1919 in New York City, New York, USA. Frank Campanella was an actor known mainly for Pretty Woman. He has a role in Pretty Woman from 1990, Overboard from 1987, and Raising Helen from 2004. Frank Campanella did pass away on December 30th, 2006 in L.A. Um, Here's a fun fact about Frank Campanella. He coached Robert De Niro to Oscar-winning success with his Sicilian dialogue in The Godfather Part II from 1974. Hmm. Now I'm about to take you down a little path of my own, Bill Bant. A little six degrees of separation. Frank Campanella was the older brother of actor Joseph Campanella. Joseph Anthony Campanella was an American character actor who had a prolific career. He appeared in more than 200 television and film roles from the early 1950s all the way up to 2009. So this is Frank Campanella's younger brother, Joseph Anthony Campanella. Joseph Anthony Campanella had seven sons. One of Joseph Anthony Campanella's sons was named Joseph Anthony Campanella Jr. Or as I knew him as Joey Campanella because 
He happens to be married to Sandy Savayos Cambinella, or as you may remember her, Bill Bant, as Sandy Savayos, a good friend of mine from my acting class, who starred with me in a little short film entitled Gabe and Meg, and who was the cameraman on that fun shoot up in Wrightwood at Jackson Lake. That would be you, Bill Bant. Yeah, I think that was me. Wow, that's cool. How about that? So to go in reverse... I was great friends with Sandy Savayos. Sandy Savayos Campanella was married to Joey Campanella. Joey Campanella's father is Joseph Campanella, a well-known actor. And Joseph Campanella's older brother is Frank Campanella, who is this week's Hey, It's That Actor. That's pretty cool. I I love how all that stuff just kind of links together. (laughs) I know, right? Small world. Yes, it is. All right, that takes us to... Facts and trivia. What are some facts and trivia we have about the Flamingo Kid? And this one has to be mentioned. The Flamingo Kid was the very first film to be given the PG-13 rating, but the movie was shelved for five months, making Red Dawn the first film to be released with the PG-13 rating. So someone asked you, was the first movie PG-13? You say Red Dawn, you're technically wrong. It was the Flamingo Kid, but Red Dawn was released first. There you go. The principal location for the movie was the Silver Gull Beach Club in Breezy Point in New York City's Rockaways, which is inside the Gateway National Recreation Area. So Little Peter was played by Peter Costa, and this was his feature film debut. Peter's sister, Lauren, was auditioning for a role in the movie when Gary Marshall saw Peter in the lobby and cast him on the spot. Gary said Peter had the best deadpan expression he had ever seen. Little Peter's mom is in the movie and was played by Peter's real mom, Linda. And yes, Lauren did get a role in the film. She played Lauren McCarthy. If Peter looks very familiar to you, and this was driving me crazy when I was watching this movie, Peter played Peter On 13 episodes of The Cosby Show, he was a friend of Rudy's. Wow. And had some classic episodes with him. Okay. All right. I was like, I know I've seen this kid somewhere before, and I could not remember it until I read this. And I was like, that is right. That's funny. The lead role was originally offered to Matthew Broderick. When he dropped out, the character was rewritten for Matt Dillon. Yes, and supposedly they had a little, what Gary said, like a falling out. Basically, the falling out was Matthew Broderick was either going to take this movie or take Lady Hawk, and I guess Lady Hawk offered him a little more money. That's where he ended up. There you go. Here's a fun one. Uh, When Mr. Brody, played by Richard Crenna, demonstrates a TV remote control in that scene we were talking about at uh, the Brody household, When he's demonstrating the TV remote control to Jeffrey, one of the shows he channel surfs to is The Real McCoys from 1957. And the scene includes Walter Brennan as Grandpa McCoy and Richard Crenna himself as Luke McCoy, a much younger Richard Crenna. All right. So the character of Jeffrey Willis, played by Matt Dillon, likes to hum while he eats. Well, guess what? So does Matt Dillon in real life. And Gary Marshall found this out when the two of them went to lunch when discussing the script. Gary found it so funny, he added it to the movie. That's fantastic. 
That's really funny. I thought it was funny in the movie, too. Yeah. Hector, I didn't know this. Hector Elizondo appears in all of Gary Marshall's films. Yeah, I was trying to go through uh, Marshall's filmography and trying to figure out where he was in each one. And yeah, I think he is. I think he really is. So the shot of the 4th of July fireworks was used in another of Gary's movies, his feature debut, Young Doctors in Love. (laughs) That's great. All right, let's move on to box office. So The Flamingo Kid was released on December 21st, 1984 in 531 theaters. On an estimated budget of $10 million, it grossed $23.9 million domestically. It debuted number 12 at the box office behind four other movies that also debuted that week. Protocol, Johnny Dangerously, Breakin' 2, Electric Boogaloo, and Harold and Maude. However, the following week, the Flamingo Kid jumped to the number 10 spot with a 120% increase in ticket sales. It would stay in the top 10 for another five weeks, reaching the number three spot on its fourth week of release. It was the 43rd highest grossing movie domestically in the United States, just ahead of 16 Candles. So moving on to reviews, when growing up in the early 80s, we would watch sneak previews with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips from upcoming releases. Their review of The Flamingo Kid was unanimous. Two thumbs up. Gene found it to be a sweet coming-of-age comedy where it develops both its teenage and adult characters. Roger was very impressed with Matt Dillon's performance, which shows that he is an actor and not just a teen idol. Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 85%, and it has an IMDb rating of 6.2. So this takes us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions you have about The Flamingo Kid? Well, you've answered a couple of my questions already, so I'll get to the two big ones I had. And one is the obvious. Do you have a favorite movie about card games or that has a major plot point involving a card game. Yeah. The two that jumped in my head, of course, is rounders with Matt Damon. And then the second one would be Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig, James Bond one. Those are like two of the biggest like card game movies that I can think of. Those are my top two as well. And I, you can, you know, there's professional poker players out there, card players out there that have analyzed the games in these films and broken them down and nitpicked them and, and found flaws, but uh, they are entertaining nonetheless. Uh, I'd also put in uh, Maverick. I enjoyed that film with uh, Mel Gibson and is it Jodie Foster and um, James Garner? Correct. And then looking at lists online, I've never seen California Split. That's from the 70s. Oh, I just saw that one a couple of years. That's with uh, Elliot Gould, right? Uh, that sounds right. Robert Altman, I think, directed that one. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's okay. And then there was the recent, uh, I think this is 2021, uh, uh, Paul Schrader film called The Card Counter, which I'd like to see uh, starring Oscar Isaac. That's amongst the lists I found when looking up best card game slash gambling movies. Another one I liked, kind of small film, was The Cooler with uh, William H. Macy. That was in the list too. That was on yeah, the list I found Alden. as well. I like that movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't remember the actual card games or gambling it. I mean, I knew what his job was as the cooler, but. Right. It's usually like blackjack or something like that. 
Yeah. Did you have additional thoughts, questions, my friend? Yeah, I got. I actually have a bunch of questions. Okay. So how much money do you think Jeffrey gave Fortune at the end of the movie? So at the end of the movie, they share the gym winnings with Jeffrey, the other two guys. It's the winning while the movie back. And then they let Jeffrey borrow Steve's car and he drives off and Fortune, who bet the $500 on the horse and lost it, brings the car to him and he goes, here, this is for you. It's your tip. Right. It drives off. And, you know, Fortune was talking about how he's going to Notre Dame and he needs money for school. And it's an envelope full of cash. How much do you think he gave him? I think maybe he gave him back the 500 that he bet. Do you think he did more? That's what I assumed. But then when Fortune takes the cash out of the envelope and fans it and you see several and it looks like $100 bills. I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I mean, gosh, how much money Jeffrey actually, what his take was after winning the gin rummy tournament, Correct. so to speak. But it seemed like it gave him maybe a couple grand because Fortune, had he won the race at the track after putting 500 bucks down, could have won $4,000 is what he said. Right. So to one. I'm not sh- sure if maybe that's what... Jeffrey gave him, did he give him four grand? But then that means Jeffrey would have won, had to have won like a lot of money. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking if I was in that situation, I wouldn't have given him more than the 500. That was a nice moment though. Yeah. Because I'm like, all right, I'm the one that brought him into this. Let him know about this. And then he lost the 500. Yeah. I don't know if I would have gave him over the 500. That's just me. Okay. All right. Next question. What do you think happens with Jeff and Carla or Jeffrey and Carla? I, that's the thing is, I don't think anything happens, to be honest. I, you know, what I assume is that she goes back to UCLA and meets a new guy. She meets another guy. She's a couple years older. And well, she invites him to come out in November for Thanksgiving. That's right. Yeah. And Phil even tried to bribe Jeffrey, saying, Hey, I can put you out at a dealership out in California. Could be around Carla all the time. Right. And yeah. he, blew up, he blew that bridge sky high. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's over, unfortunately. Okay. Is this a better movie with Matthew Broderick? Great. Now, there's a good question. Let me think. Matthew Broderick in this movie. It's totally different. Yeah. I think Matthew Broderick could have brought a certain vulnerability, definitely more comedy to the part. But then I think it would be missing Matt Dillon's. Matt Dillon has a. Like kind of a, um, he's that neighborhood guy. He's that Brooklyn kid. He's a little tough. He's a little rough and can still play vulnerability. But also I believe him when he stands up to his father. I think Matt Dillon plays the, the inexperienced. And I don't, he's not by any means dumb, but he plays uh, the, again, yeah, just inexperienced. He plays that, I think, Matthew Broderick might come off a little too smart or we would just come off smarter in the part, which would change things. Okay. Does that make sense? Like Matt Dillon's just a little bit more raw. Mm-hmm. I think Dillon plays the dramatic scenes better. And I believe Dillon would get Carla. I don't believe Matthew Broderick would have got Carla. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, it's a different movie for sure. It would lean much more toward the comedy with Broderick in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you have a question? Oh, yeah. I was just going to ask you, we were talking about perspective and, and what life was like, thinking about who we were in our youth. 
And this made me reflect a little bit about my decision process when I graduated high school and that summer before college and what uh, that summer was like. And I didn't know uh, what was your process. And did you, were there any outside pressures or internal pressures that you were dealing with and thinking, gosh, I have to make these decisions? Because that's the, that is part of the, you know, the crux of this movie is that Jeffrey has to make decisions. And it can feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. And I don't know, do you remember how you felt when you had to make certain decisions about the path you were going to take, the direction your life was going to take and what it meant to you at that time? I remember when I turned 20, turning that age kind of bummed me out a lot because I figured in that next decade, I was like, oh my God. So in the next 10 years, I'm going to get married, possibly have some kids. I'm probably going to know whatever my job's going to be for the rest of my life. So that was kind of daunting thinking about all that. And then the funny thing was, is I didn't get married. I didn't have any kids. Mm -hmm. The job I had in my 20s, I left that in my 30s. So none of that stuff came true. But just I just remember feeling really pressured at that age, like, oh, my God. Yeah. This next decade's really going to define me. And it didn't really happen that way. I know when I decided to go to college at the University of Miami, everyone told me, it's like, oh, you'll be back in a year. You're not going to make it. And oh, wow. Yeah, that was kind of, well, it was weird too, because like in my high school, like it was a small high school, you know, we maybe graduated 260, 265. I went away the furthest. And being from Philadelphia, I mean, there's a lot of good schools there in the area. Most of the kids went to area schools. Temple or Rutgers or Drexel. So the fact that I was actually leaving to go somewhere else, mm -hmm. that was, yeah, almost kind of frowned on by a lot of people. And uh, they're like, oh, you'll be back in a year and doing something else. You know, I, I was like, I'm going to show them and, and spite them. Right. I mean, I, yeah. yeah that's not I'd make that decision 10 times out of 10 again. College was 30 some years. And I still love talking about it. So sure. Part of me is like, if I would tell anybody, if you have the chance to go away to college, go for it. You learn so much about yourself. No question. I mean, the people I met through college compared to who I met in grade school and look, look at us, the two of us, we're still, we're still talking. I don't talk to anybody yeah, from high school. Yeah, case in point. Yeah, from high school or, or grade school. Everybody I keep in contact with school-wise was from college. Yeah, interesting. Okay, good stuff. You can... Feel as though you've been put into a position to make these life decisions during these formative years where it doesn't, you know, look, looking back upon it doesn't feel quite appropriate when there's just so much growth that still needs to be done. And it seems like a lot, but this is just the system, it seems. And that's for better or worse. I'm not judging the system. I, I, I understand. I, I think college can be important for a lot of different reasons. And I agree with you, Bill, that. For me personally, it was more about going into a new environment, new atmosphere, and meeting new people and experiencing different cultures and broadening my horizons, simply put. I learned a lot for, for sure from the classes that I took, but it was mainly about the people that I met and the social uh, experiment and experiences. So, you know, that was it for me. But before that, I definitely felt the pressure in high school to make the grades to get the scholarship and to get into a good school. Um, I felt that it was a matter of reputation. Um, it was a matter of either being, it was a matter of being, being successful, becoming successful. And 
I wanted to be held in high opinion. I was looking for validation and all these things. And I think once I, I, however, I was very fortunate in knowing what I wanted from an early age, knowing that I wanted to get into the performing arts, either through filmmaking or acting, and thus landed on the University of Miami. And once having gotten into the school that summer beforehand, then I kind of coasted. And I remember my parents were not too thrilled about my lack of enthusiasm for getting a summer job or then when I did, just not working very hard. It's just never been my forte when it comes to the nine to five. I'm more of a creative soul. But yeah, there was a lot of uh, the same. I was fortunate. I think I got a lot of respect as it turned out from my peers where they were like, holy crap, you're going to go all the way down to Miami, Florida. You're going to go so far away from your family and such just to take a shot at this, your dream and and do that whole, th- you know, and I think I actually got that more even after college when I decided to move to LA, same kind of thing. Oh, you're going to move mm-hmm. the other way ac- all the way across the country to just pursue this dream, which is not entirely practical if you look at the numbers and the stats, right? So varying opinions from friends, you know, and I know my mother held back certain opinions on what my choices were. Both my parents were very supportive of my choices in getting into the creative industry. They wanted me to be happy. That was all that mattered in the end. But I know my mom was like, oh, you could do a lot of different things. <laughs> you could do a lot of different things. You got really good grades. You excelled in different areas of education. Why not pursue something that guarantees maybe a, a steadier income. And that's that's a practical, uh, that was my, you know, very practical way of looking things. But anyway, yeah, it was just, and I was just a different, I was just such a different person then. It's funny to look back on that. Glad that I ended up, you know, made the choices uh, I made because if not, we wouldn't be here working on this podcast today. True that. All right, so let's move on to our rating. So on a scale of one to five card games, what you give the Flamingo Kid. I'm giving this one 3.5 card games. And yeah, it's just kind of a slice of life movie about a kid finding his way through the summer and learning to make his own decisions and landing on what's really important to him. This movie's got great music. Great music. I love the setting. I love the time period. Matt Dillon's a star. Janet Jones is stunning. Jessica Walter cracks me up in her small supporting role as Phyllis Brody. And... I I adore Hector Elizondo. I really do. Richard Crenna is capable. He's great. That's just kind of like, it's almost, I, I don't mean to kind of brush him under the rug and say, you know, he was great. But for me, uh, yeah, Hector Elizondo was a standout. Love to see a really, really young Marissa Tomei. Look her up on YouTube. You can find the little clips from this film, The Flamingo Kid, that uh, she appears in in her debut. She's uh, she's adorable. It's Marissa Torrey. I mean, she's absolutely adorable. So uh, great cast, great supporting cast, loaded with recognizable faces we know and love. It's a nice, easygoing, coming-of-age summer flick. It's flawed. Yeah, sure, fine. But I just say kick back in the recliner. Throw an umbrella in your vodka on the rocks like uh, Phyllis Brody would drink. And enjoy it. Enjoy your summer. 3.5 card games for me. Yeah, I gave it three card games. So it was a pretty solid movie. Glad to go back and revisit this. Some of it, I think, just drags a little bit. And it's not that long of a movie. It's only an hour 40, but it's like, I oh, could probably cut like five or six minutes out of this. Got rid of some of the sure. 
story stuff, but um, I did enjoy it. And the problem is anyone listening to this episode that wants to go stream it right now just cannot find it. So uh, Netflix, Hulu, Paramount Plus, whoever the hell has this one, put this back in your, your library there so people can check it out. Agreed. So I think that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com for our next episode. Our summer at the cinema series continues as we discuss The Lost Boys, starring Jason Patrick, Kiefer Sutherland, Diane Wiest, and Jamie Gertz. We hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. He can't come to the dance because he's playing our cabana boy. I'm going out of my fucking mind. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world. <laughs>